Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday, the 13th of the 1st, another glorious day. I want to start off with a quick uh, congratulations to the Fine Gael Senators who have just been restored the party whip after having it removed after Golfgate. Golfgate? Golfgate, yes. That, uh, that storm in a teacup. Yeah, it's actually... It's funny, it was still rolling on last week. There was a paper, there was a paper, there was a story in the papers talking about the problems, the, the, about the replacing the Chief Justice and what will happen this year about uh, in the, and the relationships on the court and stuff. So that's trundled on nicely. But the boys are back in town and we're all delighted to see them. That is uh, Jerry Buttimer, Paddy Burke and John Cummins. All back in the warm, loving embrace of Fine Gael. Uh, Do you want some like hot, saucy gossip, Michael? Not proven, just gossip. Okay. There is a report coming out of uh, some of the German media. The EU recently did a trade deal with China. And there's loads of condemnation of that uh, based on the fact that, you know, the genocide and the slave labor. Usual nonsense. And that, you know, aligning with the Chinese at this point could in some way be seen. Yeah, I mean, it's just... It's just naysayers, Michael. People who cannot see a good thing for what it is, finely crafted by the hands of small children from ethnic minorities who have been given a job. But anyway, the reports coming out of China. So if you want to invest in China, there's tons of barriers. There's all these things in your way and some things you just can't do. A lot of times you have to partner with a local Chinese company. A lot of times you're going to run into some severe problems. It can be done. It can be incredibly lucrative. But depending on the area you're in and what you're doing can be very difficult. China, for instance, does not give uh, mobile phone licenses to external companies, to companies outside of China. And you'd imagine, Michael, that is an incredibly valuable market. Huge. I mean, incredible. Now, it's been reported in the German media that Germany may have been offered uh, what they're calling a side deal if they supported the EU-China agreement on investment. Now, Germany was one of the major pushers of that deal. In fact, Merkel was, if anything, the major player behind it. And um, China has said they're willing to provide Deutsche Telekom with a mobile phone license. The first time this will ever be offered to a foreign country. Oh my, I mean, a mobile phone license in China. That's just, I mean, how, how many billions of euro is that going to add to the market cap of Deutsche Telekom. Ah, I mean, it will be incredible, particularly given that it is still a state-run system. And if that's something that's being offered to Germany in order to make sure that trade deals are sold and that they stay sold, I mean, that's uh, that's incredible. The deal also says that in five years, Michael, Deutsche Telekom can start to own infrastructure in China. Wow. So the the value of this deal is going to be something incredible. Just absolutely incredible. Now, the problem there, of course, if this gossip is correct, Michael, yes. is that it would sort of look like Germany, who has, shall we say, a mixed past with genocide, has decided that the price of genocide is a mobile phone license. You see, you say it in that very glib, off-hand way. It's not a mobile phone license. It's a mobile phone license in a country with 1.3 billion people. No, and where the state, on the assumption that this is, you know, they want to maintain good relations with you, will probably make it very easy to make money. Uh, you know, 
it's just good to not have competitors sometimes. Of course, the downside here is that Deutsche Telekom becomes a political company, and if China ever wants to put the squeeze on Germany, then they're going to go right to Deutsche Telegram. And this kind of relates to something interesting that came out during the um, talks about banning Huawei in Europe, but also in relation to this trade deal. Heads of businesses were putting immense pressure on uh, national governments because they were being told that their Chinese arms, their Chinese businesses, whatever their operations were in China, might become problematic if this deal didn't go through. Problematic. So from Germany's perspective, fantastic. It's a German company. It's going to make Ton, it's just going to print money. Yes. From China's perspective, it's another way to just kind of grab you by the balls if you ever start making trouble. And China won't need to lobby for certain things. They'll just put the pressure on Deutsche Telekom and Deutsche Telekom will do it. Because, you know, it's just trying to build infrastructure and suddenly permits are just very difficult to get and all of that stuff. And, you know, it'd be a lot easier if this deal was in place. It would just smooth everything over. You know, we're just very busy worrying about that deal. And you don't have to do anything. They'll do it for you. Because why wouldn't they? They're not going to lose an economic opportunity at this point. This is an incredible money-making venture. Back in the late 90s, there was a thing called ethical foreign policy. It was very fashionable. Uh, Tony Blair with Robin Cook were these two of the leaders in this particular fashion. Did they come up that way before or after the war? Oh, before, before. Okay. And, uh, I think before, yeah, it was before. Just checking, because... Yeah. And... Uh, it became quite the thing. Uh, I imagine that Germany is committed to ethical foreign policy. Very much so. In fact, Germany's big into ethical everything. So, um, no, Michael, this is not. No, it is the act of a, a cynic to suggest that this is due to Germany pushing for that trade deal. This is a totally unrelated thing that simply hasn't happened before and is now being talked about after Germany pushed through an immensely advantageous trade deal. Yeah, I mean, just, it would be... Those are unrelated things. It would be... Oh, you'd want to be as... You're one step away from just pictures on a board with red string between them. You know, to see this as being in some sense a quid pro quo would require you to have a very low, cynic... Worse than cynical. Nasty. A nasty, low kind of a mind. I don't think Frau Merkel or uh, the German government would be involved in that kind of thing. I I find it very hard to believe, Gary. However, um, can we tie this up? Because I just want to get on the online to see what price Deutsche Telekom shares are at the moment. I mean, I think that is very wise for totally unrelated measures. Totally unrelated or, measures, but you know, oh, absolutely. We, we all have to, we all need a pension. We, we do, and I have a feeling that, Michael, those stocks are going to skyrocket. Fingers crossed. That is not investment advice, and you should not invest based upon our decisions or anything we say. The value of your investments may go up as well as down. Little bit of a, a thing on the vaccination numbers. We're being told by the government that they hit their target for last week, which is 35,000. Uh, they haven't actually released the figures, despite I'm pretty sure Stephen Donnelly promised, if not daily, regular vaccination numbers. And they haven't released the actual vaccination numbers since, I think, last Thursday. Now they're just going, no, we definitely hit the targets. In fact, we did better than we thought we did. There will be no follow-on questions. And to give you an idea of how bad that has gotten, Our World in Data, which is what pretty much everyone is using to look at uh, COVID-19 vaccination and infection rates and compare them to other countries, when you go to the source of their data, most of them are, you know, governmental websites and things like that. The things you would expect, Michael. 
The source for Ireland's vaccination data that says we've hit the target is the Twitter account of uh, Richard Chambers, who is a reporter. I mean, yes, he's moving up in the world, but it's probably not a good sign when an organization that sort of specializes in this thing simply goes, well, there's no actual figures. This tweet is enough. Indeed. Uh, and we should, of course, you said regular. You know, I remember many years ago, it was a, 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 a fellow arrived in, in one of my, lo- my local and he got his Christmas drink and somebody, and he said, when the, the, the others said, well, why is he getting a Christmas drink? And he said, he's a, re- he's, a re- he's a regular, all regulars get a Christmas drink. He said, he's only here once a year. He said, yes, every year he comes in on Christmas Eve. Regular as clockwork, never misses. So regular isn't a, doesn't necessarily mean like every week, Gary. It just means at regular intervals. I suppose technically once every two months is still a uh, a regular thing. And so before we go into the more the actual news, we've talked about people having a good time. But if you think that your day is going terribly, spare a thought for a man who has uh, two hundred and twenty million dollars on a military grade encrypted USB. That will self-destruct if he enters the password incorrectly ten times. He's incorrectly entered it eight times. And now he gets to sit and look at $220 million he can't crack. <laughs> it's not. It, it really is like one of an, a, a, sorry, an Aesop's fable for the modern world, doesn't it? It's sitting there. He knows it's there. It's inside. This huge amount of money. This lump of cash which will change his life. And he's there desperately. What did I put? What did? Because presumably, if he 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 didn't do a proper, no, I would not. Should I say a, a password like normal people would do, which is take a word and another word and a number that they all associate have an association with. It was one of those things. He he probably got a one of those random generator things where you have sixteen digits and three thirty thirteen letters and different symbols, and you you know. Yeah. So this this guy, a programmer called Stephen Thomas. Got 7,000 bitcoins as, a, I think, as payment for a small job he did years ago. Bitcoins accumulated massively, massively, now worth about 220 million. I think last week it was worth even more, probably substantially more. But he can't get it, and he just has to look at it, mm-hmm. knowing that if he hadn't lost the piece of paper that he wrote it on, he could have it all. So your day could always be worse, because that's the sort of maddening despair that drives people to suicide. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, you get like a promotion and you think you should be happy and you're like, yeah, I got an extra 30,000 a year. God, if only I could access that $220 million on my kitchen table. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, maybe he's gotten zen about it. Anyway, so on to actual news in Ireland. The mother and baby home report. Sorry, Gary, just before you do that, sorry, I'm going to cut on you. You didn't happen talking about the vaccinations just very quickly. You didn't happen to see a tweet, I think it was from Mark McSharry, about the rollout of the tweet? Uh, the rollout of the, of, the, of the the vaccine? I don't believe I did. Where he basically said, listen, it wasn't, uh, it's not the fault of public service, it's not the fault of, it's not the fault of the HSA. These people work 27, these 24 hours, Seven a week, three sixty-five. It's my fault. It's the government's fault. It's the EU's fault. It was a refreshing act of honesty and generosity. I thought in 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 the in the modern age. I don't know if it went on terribly well with his colleagues or with the government, but there you go. He's a bit of a 
And I mean, it also looks like the HSE will now actually be working on the weekends, which, as we said, is totally at variance with their with the plans that were sent out, but would indicate that um, perhaps they had thought that when people found that out, they wouldn't be annoyed, and people seem to be very much annoyed by it. Who could have, could have seen that one coming? Who could have seen that coming, you know? Uh, well, that, I believe, is what they call a black swan, Michael. <laughs> The, uh, yes, the black swan. That's Mr. Taleb, isn't it? The Mother and Baby Home Report has come out. No doubt by now you have seen many of the hottest takes possible on it, like molten steel. Uh, what, I, what I will say to you is I have looked very briefly at the report, which is probably more than most of the people who have written about it have done, and I don't say that to disparage them. I simply say if you came out with a very detailed editorial such as the Irish Times today did talking about how this showed the uh, silence and shame of our culture. The report is 2,865 pages long. The executive summary, which would usually be a page, was released as its own document because it is 76 pages long. It is simply impossible to read nearly 3,000 pages in a day. So anyone who comes out and says the report says this is uh, maybe have uh, cherry picked a little bit. Maybe the old control F. It is. You're, you're quite right. No, I, I have read the executive summary. Uh, I have not read the report, but I have read the executive summary. And it uh, makes very interesting reading. And obviously, as you say, it's not the report. It's merely the executive but if you take that, what it will represent of the general trends within the report, I think one of the things is I don't think it's going to be quite the uh, the nuclear weapon to be used uh, against the religious orders in the church that people had expected or some people might have hoped it was going to be. I don't know. I've looked through parts. I've read the executive summary and I've read the recommendations. And the general sense, and obviously there is uh, about 2,700 more pages to look at, the general sense seems to be, yes, terrible things happened, but also there was quite widespread involvement, and here is the extent of that involvement. And it doesn't seem to be, as I think many people would have liked, just the church's fault. Well, I think you could go a little bit farther than that even. Uh, what surprised me, because I haven't heard it talked about at all, is it talks about the county homes mm. quite a bit. And uh, in point 218 of the executive sum summary, it says conditions in the county homes were much worse than in any mother and baby home with the exceptions of Kilrush and Tomb. Kilrush and Tomb were baby homes which were staffed by religious, but actually were under the management and the authority and the uh, funding of the local authorities. That's, I think, I hadn't heard any discussion or debate or recriminations about the state of the county homes. That was just, I, you, I mean, one of those things we say often, you, Gary, are too young to remember it, I would, I, I imagine, you, I, your your parents even would be too younger. But my mother was of a generation that I consider remember old people would talk about the county home. And it was a terrible thing, the idea that you might end up in the county home. And I didn't quite understand why. I mean, there was a sense that there was a, a degree of shame because this was the, the county home was kind of the last 
point in the evolution that starts off with the poor house that goes to the workhouse that goes to the poor unions and so on and that they end up be functioning in each local district county council district as the, the county home uh and but there was also i hadn't the, the sense it's not just that this was a sign of complete destitution but also the conditions that seem to be an operative operant in these county homes seems to be absolutely awful. And these were completely under the aegis of the state, of the local authorities and of the government. And another point, the point that's made is that an awful lot of the stuff that people are shocked about now and horrified about, and naturally and rightly so, were in the public domain. But one of the things that, they, that is repeated a number of times they get to the summaries, there is no evidence that in the wider public or in the uh, in in shall we say the voters that there was any particular concern about these facts. Yeah, I mean that was one thing I noted from what I've read as well. The mentions of uh, women when they're in the community because it was talking it talks about different types of abuse, mostly emotional abuse, but it's not just in the uh, the mother and baby homes. It discusses it also talks about these people being abused in the wider community. And how prevalent yes. that was. But I was struck by something at the start of the... Um, two things, actually, at the very start of the executive summary. One was the mention when it's... You sort of get this as a sense of explaining the, the place of these things in Irish society. That it was 1973 before the unmarried mother's allowance came in. And that that was the first time a state payment was available to help an unmarried mother uh, raise her children. Yeah, I mean, and one of the points that they make, and that's uh, the, speaking directly to that, is that again, that again and again, we, this, there's a sense that a large number of women ended up going to the mother and baby homes, ultimately, even if the situation and the conditions were hard and harsh, because this was, in a sense, the only refuge they had. There was nowhere else, literally nowhere else for them to go. I mean, that, that also is in the start of the executive summary. One of the lines was that um, the women who gave birth outside marriage were particularly badly treated during this time. And that that bad treatment was supported and condoned by the institutions of the state and the church. And then it went on to say that, however, it does have to be acknowledged that the institutions we're investigating give these people a refuge, although a harsh refuge in some cases, when their families provided none at all. I might also mention communities in there. Um, now, there are, there are, of course, stuff, particularly in relation to some of the debt rates. Oh, horrific. I mean, in Bessborough, in, I think, 43, which is the high point. Now, the war is the high point for infant mortalities in Ireland in the 20th century anyway. But I think in Bessborough, once they reached something like 75% um, or uh, infant mortality rates in one year. It's horrific. And in other, and that's nothing, of course, you get a sense that there's quite a, a variety of outcome depending on where, what, which, which home you're talking about. For example, the home run by the Good Shepherd nuns in Dunboyne, which was opened, I think, in maybe 61, after the Adoption Act in 53, had much better conditions. And one of the points they make in 213 is that it's important to distinguish between mother and baby homes and the county homes. The available evidence suggests that while living conditions in the mother and baby homes were basic, there was no indication they were inadequate by the standards of the time, except in Kilrush and Tume. 
I, and in another part, and they they make the point that a, a number of the homes had uh, access to obstetricians at a time when there were very few obstetricians available, and that a num in a number of the ba mother and baby homes they had better access to better maternity care than most women in the wider community. It's I tell you what comes out to me, Gary Morrisall, is there was something very weird, odd, disfiguring about Irish society in the 20th century which has its roots probably going back into the 19th century maybe before that i mean we have and we, we've known this for a long time ireland has very late nuptiality all through the 20th century i remember as a kid getting the guinness poker records i think in the 1979 or something and i can still remember that there were very few things that ireland was in the records for one was we had the the highest even then we had the highest average age for marriage in the world i think for men it was 29 for women it was 27 and that was a constant we had we irish people married very late now that's the average as you under you understand we just that means that the the most common age, the median for marriage, would have been higher than that, because there would have been people being married in their teens and early twenties, bringing the average down. We have probably they speculate they don't know they say this we don't know because there are very few international comparisons available with data, <clears throat> but it's possible that Ireland has the highest number of women in mother and baby homes in the world, and that this seems to be. Seems to be connected with the, with the the way that family formation occurred in Ireland in the twentieth century, because people are marrying very late, and by the way, still having very large families. Even with late nuptiality, they were having some of the largest families in the Western world, the largest number, the highest rates of uh, fer fertility in the Western world. Now, there's something if you have people who are delaying marriage. Until the age, into their late thirties and early into their early forties, it is vanishingly unlikely, Gary. I would say that all of these people are being pure and continent and abstaining from sex. It also says that it's clear from some of the reports that many of the women involved, right up until the early sixties, did not know how they had become pregnant. They did not understand the mechanics of fertility, of sex. So. One thing seems to be the case that there is a, a, a remarkable capacity of Irish men to father children and then simply abandon them. Again, this is connected back into what is at the time a much, much more rural country than it is today. Far higher numbers of people living on the land and generally speaking, living on very small pieces of, 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 of land, very small farms, where People would not marry until a couple of things had happened. First of all, basically, you had to wait until Mammy died because you couldn't bring a woman into the house when Mammy was still alive. Secondly, you had to get rid of the siblings. You couldn't. Yeah. Now, this is not, these are not universal. It's not that this happened in every case, but as a general trend, that if there were younger siblings that were still in the family home, marriage was delayed so you had to wait until the younger siblings were were, were, were about so it was a, a very odd uh, the sociology of the country is very odd very strange family formations producing these very very unfortunate uh, results and it's hard reading but it's it, it's really interesting it, has, it is actually i mean it's, it's a fascinating document from what i've seen so far 
Um, I'm particularly interested, and I haven't gotten to it yet, but I read the executive summary on it, but I want to go through the full report on exactly what was happening with adoption. Yes. Um, one thing they say, even though it was widely, it has since been widely criticised, they say that whatever about it, after, Ireland was the second last country in Europe to introduce formal adoption laws. The uh, Netherlands, I think they said, was the last in 1957. So with the Adoption Act in 1953, and it said that whatever about whatever about the deficiencies, it was a vastly improved uh, situation from what had previously been happening. On the subject of the adoptions, there's a couple of interesting things. They say, for example, uh, they can find no evidence for or against the belief that the mother and baby homes made large amount of money by providing children for adoption, say, to the United States. Yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting. There's a couple of points where it, it seems to be saying that they don't think the, the religious orders actually made any uh, money from this. Oh, yeah. I mean, they say a number of times when they refer to specific institutions say, where they say, and they received the capitation on this basis or subvention on that basis, but this was almost certainly not, in. this was almost certainly less than the expenditure. The sense I, I've gotten so far, and obviously, as I said, I've read 100 pages of this nearly 3,000 page report, just the executive summary and the recommendations. Some of the things it talks about uh, don't sound they sound like at their source is the fact that this was not a funding priority. This was not something people cared about for the most part. This was a charity case. Like I, I didn't know actually that uh, Chum, that the house there also housed the destitute, like it's just where they put the homeless as well. And I think that kind of ties with um, when they're talking about treatment in the institution. It talks about um, there's no evidence of the sort of gross abuse in mother and baby homes that occurred in industrial schools. They make the point that yeah, that there's no evidence of sexual abuse and that, and very little evidence of physical abuse. However, as the point you made earlier, was well, yes, there was evidence of, of emotional abuse. But that emotional abuse very often was paralleled by, the, by similar kinds of abuse uh, and which existed in the wider community. What I'm actually really interested in is if uh, if this has this further down, is comparisons between mortality rates in the county homes and in the mother and baby homes. Yeah, uh, one of the things they do, they, they're only looking at a number of the county homes. They only they have only they've looked at maybe half a dozen. I think that that's one of the things that's going to happen next is going to we're going to be looking at details from from all of the county homes are going to have to be looked at. And also, I'm interested to see what the reaction of the victim groups is to that because from reading the report so far, it seems that the sense is all of the blame has been put on the church, but. These things reflect wider societal views at the time, and even in institutions in which the church had no involvement, we see the same pattern of behaviour. And I'm not sure how well that's going to go down with some of the victims' groups, because it's going to kind of come across, I would suspect, as going, well, it's no one's fault. It's no, it, There's no person you can blame, and I imagine they will want blame to be apportioned at some point. And I'd also be interested further on in exactly how much fault it thinks should be placed on the church and how much of this is the state and how much of it is underlying um, social conditions. I would suspect that's the split you're going to see on editorial on this. The more progressive uh, 
media sources are going to go for. It was the church fault primarily and reflects you know, shamefully on everyone else. And I expect the more conservative editorials will go in the sort of it was everyone's fault. Well, it's interesting. Pat Lahey in the Irish Times has an article and his basic line is for anybody who was looking to see a report which was going to blame the church and absolve society and the families from the from the from the state of life state of uh, the treatment of these women, they're going to be disappointed. And his take seems very much is rather a lacerating take on this, on wider society and uh, and of the families of these women, at least on the basis of the executive summary. It's not even that they're saying that the situation was similar in other non-secular institutions, but rather, in the case of the county homes, that the conditions were considerably worse. For example, he talks about the fact that some of the women in the in the mother and baby homes did work, but it was the kind of work that they would have done had they were had they been at home. Whereas they they talk about women in the county homes having to do hard owners jobs, uh, which for which they were not paid and they should have been paid. As well as the fact that just generally the conditions um, weren't just right. I mean, there's a there's an interesting point in number two four four in the executive summary which said until the 1960s or 1970s, the quality of maternity care in mother and baby homes was probably superior to that available to the majority of Irish women at the time. That's not what you would have imagined, and certainly doesn't seem to be what you would uh, take from their assessment of the of the county homes. No, I mean, you do see, they do mention by name, other facilities in which you were looking at, in any given year, 40% of new births would end in fatality within a year. Yeah, and then you have other institutions where it's down to 16%. Very... Um, up in one year, up to 75%, as I said, in, in, in Bespera. Uh, which is incredible, and you would you, you would want to look at that in, and have a look at the context of that in comparison to other other places in other at other times. Um, on the subject of uh, compensation, it's very careful, basically, not to take a position. He said that's really that's up to the government, and uh, we're not going to make a decision on. We're not going to make a. We're not making a statement on that on that uh, at this place. So uh, that's what that's that hot topic is is for choice. Well, not long fingered, but rather saying is. Uh, there have already been a lot of calls. You know that there needs to be. You know they should that property should be taken by from the religious orders, etc. But I don't know on the basis of, as you say, someone probably hopefully you rather than me have to read the whole thing. But on the basis of the executive summary, the implication is that if you're looking for uh, failures and failings, that uh, the state failed as badly or indeed worse, and that what we're looking at here is a reflection of something which was, at the time, was well known and not considered to be egregious. No, and there, there were official mentions of the rates of deaths in some of these facilities, and that they were at least concerning very, very early on. One, one thing I did find interesting from the executive summary, and I'm just looking at it now, it's, it's point two three four. was um, they're talking about Bespera and that it had yeah. um, a 75%, uh, 75% of children who were born there died before their first birthday in Bespera in 1943. Yeah. And um, they talk about private patients 
And this is an interesting one. Many of these children were unaccompanied when they died. The fact that private patients were permitted to leave Bespera without their child appears to have been a major, major contributory cause of death. And that was actually something I'd never really thought about before. Nine percent of the pa- of in nine uh, percent of the babies were uh, of private were private, pa- but they constituted over twenty one percent of the of the of the mortality. And it does seem to be that it seems to be a connection between babies who whose mothers were with them and whose mother, as opposed to others who had left the home, that that seems to have been a significant factor in mortality. It's, as I said, it's very long. I will link the, the full report below this, and you can also look at the executive summary, should anyone be interested in reading a nearly 3,000-page report. But it is, from what I've seen, it's, it's a very interesting report and a very complicated topic that actually seems, from what I've read of it, very fair about it. Like, I don't get the sense from reading it that it's been slanted in any way to appeal for or against any side. Now, maybe it has and when you read the full thing, but I don't get that sense. It just seems to be an actual attempt to figure out what's happening here. Uh, one thing I, I did note is um, there were complaints about it being leaked. The Irish Independent uh, got some of it and published it. And I remember reading the Irish Independent stuff, and I was like, when I read it, I was like, oh, maybe the homes weren't that bad. Because the Irish Independent published some stories from it, but yes, they published yeah, the yeah. most inoffensive stories. But because they published it, and a newspaper tends to go for the most sensationalist things, I was looking at it going, oh, well, I mean, if that's like if that's all they got, if, that's, yeah. that's nothing. If that's the, yeah, they were going to try for the absolute worst they could find. What they were, in the context of previous investigations into places like Letter Frack and Baltimore, you know, this this did not seem to be as anything like the horror stories that we heard there. You're thinking, well, if that's the worst that they can come up with, no, it's 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 interesting and maybe ironic that a lot of this co- is kicks off because of the scandal in Tume, and Tume does come out as being one of the absolute worst. Again and again, they say. Uh, mother and baby homes were better than county homes, comma, except for Tumen Kalush. Except for Tumen Kalush. This seems to be a, retur- a, cur- a recurring theme. This, uh, I, am, I am actually interested in the section on Tum in the full report that I haven't, I haven't got to yet, purely because it is, it is taken apart from the other ones on so many grounds that I'm very interested to see what the full breakdown of it shows. Because why was it that different? I remember talking to a, 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 an individual over there who, in po- uh, 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 he'd been in politics for a long time, uh, county council level, and he said that it, everybody knew that back in the 40s and 50s there had been letters sent, both, I think, by, possibly by inspectors but and, poss- and also by the, the superior at the time, saying that not only were the funds being provided insufficient for the material upkeep of the place, but also that they had... They were they were having trouble feeding, and on two occasions it came. And the response, based from the county councillors, was, "Well, we're not going to spend the the, the money of, of the hard working ratepayers of the county on the, the to keep the likes of these in Mary in luxury, Maria. You know, there was incredible lack of sympathy for these people. Really, a, cru- a, very, a very cruel side, a very cold, cruel side." to official Ireland 
not well, and official Ireland at that level, you have to say, is probably a mirror to the Ireland generally. Uh, I think, and I'm not saying this as a justification, just as a context for a context. I think one of the other things that comes out talking to people about this and now reading the report, I people in Ireland have forgotten how very poor large parts of Ireland was until really quite recently. The absence, they were talking, at one stage they talk about the, um, you know, the, the fact that in many houses in in rural areas would not have been electrified until the 1960s. And they, there's, a, there's a statistic thinking of like, something like 12% of uh, houses in one area, in rural houses would have had water on tap in the house. There would not have been a uh, plumbed bath or uh, toilets, uh, flush toilets. You know, that, it's very hard for a, a child of Ireland post the tiger to imagine what kind of country it, we were in until not that long ago. This was a very, very poor place. And rural Ireland, it was a, it, there was a commonality to the poverty, but so it was unremarkable. Nobody thought it was, nobody felt particularly or thought they were particularly poor because most of the people around them had the same standard of living and had the same diet and the same clothes and did the same things. But there was a level of poverty which, looking back, only a couple of generations really was quite extreme. As I said, it, it looks like an absolutely fascinating piece of research. And I'm very interested in looking more into it, particularly the adoption side of things and the actual. Uh, feelings on um, or the actual causes of death It'd be fascinating if they have any reports from people who, let's say people who were in tomb because one of the things it notes is that wasn't the responsibility of the religious order to upkeep the facility and they didn't receive a salary for it it was the responsibility of the county council but the conditions were apparently appalling yes. not due to the actual religious orders so if they have any first-hand accounts or sources from that period, I'd be very interested to see what people who were working in these homes thought. I mean, did they think this is all these people deserve? Or did they think we'd love to do more, but this is what we have? Like, this is, we've been given this amount of money to do this. We can get a sense, perhaps, of that from, there were two different types of, one of the, one of the problems where you have, uh, you probably had some sort of fairly serious abuse going on, was in the fostering of children before the Adoption Act, where children of a certain age would have been sent out and fostered with families. And there were what they were in, there were two different types of inspectors. There was a local authority inspector, but then there was there were other inspectors which were specifically involved in this, and they were all women. And they were they were far more scrupulous and careful in inspecting things like clothes bedding, uh, sleeping conditions, these kinds of things. Again and again, we see that they, the children would have had, a, they would, the family would have been given an allowance to pay for the for uh, clothing for the child, but the, ch- the children were very often left in rags uh, where and the clothing would have been spent on uh, the foster mother or other members of the family. There was constant, they, they lobbied consistently for better inspection. But the the local authority officers were far more lax about it and far less interested. So I think that there again there would have been a diversity of reaction. I suspect, and just a suspicion, 
that people working close to these women would have had maybe a greater deal of sympathy. It was much easier to maintain a moral superior position when you're standing outside the walls and you didn't have to look and see the conditions that they were living in, in places like Kilrush and Chu. You could walk by, not know anything, but then feel in your heart better than them anyway. No, whatever they're getting, sure, shouldn't they be grateful for it? But uh, I don't know if I, I will keep reading through this. Uh, 3,000 pages, so God knows how long it will take me. And once I think, if anything comes up, or once I feel I've got a better grasp, it, I'm sure we'll come back to it. As I said, I, I don't think there's much uh, value in a lot of the discussion that's going to happen around this because people haven't had time to read it. Most of the people talking about it haven't read it. That's why I, I before this, I didn't even want to touch this, but we both read the executive summary, so we thought, look, we'll go through the thoughts on that. Well, yeah, but you're, unfortunately, I think your observations are correct. I remember I actually did read the whole of the report on the Magdalene Laundries, and I had a series of conversations with people, and Gary, I might have, I might as well have read David Copperfield for the difference it made to the people to whom I was speaking. I could say, well, the report actually says, or the report says, or this is the comment of the report. No, their understanding of the story had had been established and set uh, long before the report had come out. They had seen a film, they'd gone to the cinema and seen a movie, so they knew what the story was, and that was it. And I suspect there will be a large degree of that with this report also. Whichever particular narrative is the one that you find attractive, that's the one you'll stick with anyway. Actually, one one thing, and I'd never thought about it before, but it was actually kind of obvious, was where it just notes that these were created because they felt it was unfair, or at least unsuitable, to put these people into the workhouses. I don't really think that how close the workhouses are to the current day. You kind of think, I don't know, it's, it's, you kind of think that they were a thing that happened in the past, like deep into the yeah, past. Yeah. And then when you're reading this, I'm like, no, the workhouses were still there. This was designed as something that would be better for these people than the workhouses. I don't know, it, it, I think it, it gives you somewhat of a sense of how bad things were generally in the... Now, I don't think that excuses some of what's detailed here, particularly some of the, as I said, mortality rates are way out of whack. But I, I haven't gone deep enough to see what it actually gives as the reasons for those. But anyway, I will include a, a link to it at the bottom of this podcast, should you have the free time to look through this. And if not, we might come back to it. Now, Mitch McConnell. Yes. Yeah, oh God, Mitch. Mitch, Mitch has, uh, has found, cocaine Mitch has found a new verve for justice in the form of impeaching Donald Trump. Really? Yeah, fine, I if you wanted it. I, I quite liked the New York Times art, uh, headline on this. It was, Mitch McConnell said to be pleased about Trump impeachment efforts. And their basic position is Mitch McConnell is happy to do this now because Trump is of no use to him and he believes it will make it easier to just purge Trump from the GOP entirely. I like McConnell. McConnell is that sort of, like, soulless husk behind everyone running things. And I like that in a man. He's an operator. Oh, he is. Got a very good autobiography, actually, that I accidentally ended up buying. So McConnell says that Trump has uh, probably committed impeachable actions. The Democrats are pushing forward with impeachment, or they've gotten everything ready. It's kind of a little bit of a show pony thing in that 
they're moving forward, then they're moving back because there's actually an internal debate about whether or not impeaching him actually kind of plays into his hands, considering that in uh, you know, by the end of this month he's gone anyway. But I, I don't know, it's just... The only thing that comes to mind when I hear about all this stuff is just, well, like, this is the price of losing. This is, You were strong because you could do things. Now you're weak. And so people have just turned on you because no one likes a weak horse. I don't know. I, you say that and all I can hear is the voice of some Roman general or proconsul listening to the complaints of the conquered people. Yeah, well, this is the price of losing, lads. You know, what are you going to do? Sorry about that, but there you go. Off to the slave markets. The strong do what they will and the weak do what they must. The only the only practical thing it seems to me that this might do is, I suppose, if they got it done and got it done in time, they could stop him issuing presidential pardons. Well, the House Democrats have said on Wednesday, so when by the time this goes up, uh, they will they will vote to impeach him. Now, if McConnell wants that to go true and can apply force um, down to the House, it'll go through. So, the question of what does McConnell want here? Now, obviously McConnell is in the Senate, and this is a House vote, but McConnell will do what he wants. Not why you just seem silly here, Gary, or uninformed. Is, it, is the impeachment the end of the process, or the beginning of the process? The House votes, then it goes to the Senate. The Senate is the court, isn't it? And... You can be you're impeached by the house, and the charges are presented, are in, shall we say, are presented by the um, the Senate is is the is the place where the trial happens, and an impeachment is like I'm just looking up here it's as an indictment. It's a statement of criminal charges. So even Donald will have the right to a to a process. Yeah. So the interesting thing here is that the Senate have or a leaked Senate memo said that the earliest day that the Senate could do this would be the 19th of January. And Donald Trump ends his term as president on the 20th of January. So now there's a debate on if we do this and he leaves office, can we continue the trial? So they could vote to impeach him after he has left as president. Now, I don't think that does anything. I think that's purely a symbolic gesture. Can you impeach a pre- can you impeach the president when he's not president? That is now the the debate, and no one seems to. It know. all sounds very very complicated and abstruse yeah, to me. It's gotten into a, a constitutional law argument in America. So you, on one side, you have the political argument of, uh, you know, even if we have the numbers, does this help him or does this hurt him? Because if we impeach him, and he decides to go down swinging in the last couple of days, what's he going to say? And how is that going to play to the people who love him? And are we going to have a real big problem at the inauguration? Mm. And then there's a, well, if we do it and we don't have time. And then there's an argument that they're just doing this to uh, push Pence to try and use the 25th Amendment to remove Donald Trump from power. Now, this is an interesting one because the 25th Amendment of the US Constitution allows them, the, the vice president and the cabinet to come together. And declare yes. that the president is unfit for his duties. Now, the problem there is that in order to do that, they can't show, they can't go like Donald Trump is evil or Donald Trump is stupid or Donald Trump is an ass. They have to actually, he has to be unfit. And he doesn't appear mentally unfit. That's that's the problem. Even if he does 
things that aren't ill-advised, that is not unfit. That is what people voted for. Yeah, I don't think that matters in the sense that they can find him unfit without having to show that he's Oh, no, they can. But if they were to do it and that were to set a precedent that the vice president and the cabinet can remove a president, serving president, because that's still what he is, for moves they do not consider to be appropriate, political moves or or political uh, speech. I don't see that as a precedent that anyone really wants to set. From 4,000 miles away, it seems to me that maybe the best thing to do here will be just let him go away, stop poking him with a stick. He has lost... Not only has he lost, I think, outside of his core supporters, he's lost whatever sort of penumbral respect he had with people who held their noses. I was looking at uh, some of the polling done about Trump, even on the Republican-friendly and historically Trump-friendly polling companies. He's cratered his own approval rating. Some of them were sub-30%. And Trump has always been divisive. But he's always had a core of fairly energized voters who are deeply dedicated to him. And this is one of the only things I've ever seen him do that has actually hurt his standing uh, with that. And I mean, on top of that, you have people like Colin Powell coming out and saying they're no longer Republicans. And that's not going to matter to Trump's base, but that's going to matter to a lot of people in Washington. Yeah, to the optics. Um, I suppose Mitch is... Mitch's job is to look to the party and what's going to be best for the party. But he has to negotiate it as well because he doesn't want to he doesn't want to see like the the opposite of the problem the Democrats had in their evolution in the sixties and seventies, where you have a hiving off of the Conservative Democrats in the South, the Dixiecrats, and you get something like George Wallace coming out and running and split and and splitting the vote in the south, you don't want them to to provoke a kind of a Trump insurgency amongst uh, the base and split the party and then leave the Democrats just in. Yeah, in order to get him out a week earlier than he's leaving. Yeah, really. To do what? To achieve what? What precisely? Other than Gary, all politics. It feels at times that all politics especially in the United States, has become performative. And this is the final, most dramatic thing you can do in the last scene of the last act, is to kill, is to bring the king out and cut his head off. I don't know. On one hand, I think this is largely theatrical. On the other, there may be a legitimate concern that if Trump finds himself isolated and ignored and belittled by those around him, I would say Trump has a just a dossier of executive orders that he had drawn up and which his advisors convinced him would be absolutely (laughs) horrendous. And at any moment he wants, he can just start signing them. Yeah, but the problem with an executive order is that uh, at at midday on the 20th of January, Joe Biden can just sign another document and they become ineffective. Oh, yeah. But your problem is some stuff is a lot easier to do than to roll back. And I think that is their concern, that if he if he starts feeling that this is not going with him, he may look around and go, well, they told me not to do this, that it wouldn't work. But fuck him, I'm going to do it. Because who's mm. going to tell me not to? Now, the problem I have there is if they actually think that's likely and then he might start lashing out, 
why are you provoking him? If that's the case, if you think he's legitimately going to do that, then just back off. Let him ride out the last week and you have a much higher chance of him just doing nothing. Rather than if you keep if you keep trying to impeach him, you keep trying to do these things, and he just starts swinging. A lot of people are saying that Trump is a narcissist. Well, it's always a problem for a narcissist when his construction of the world is broken and the outside world starts to bleed into the way the world has constructed as he would like it to be. And then if you come along and you try and humiliate him further. Now, it was predicted by a bunch of Harvard psychologists that Hitler would go down in, in a kind of a Twilight of the Gods thing where he would try and destroy Germany, try and destroy Europe and then kill himself because that's something that narcissists of a certain kind do. I don't see Trump topping himself. But if you insist on poking him on and humiliating him, well, why wouldn't he decide to do, you know, just stick it to you? If you just keep after, leave him alone. Stop poking him with a stick. Let him spend his time with Melania packing up the China or whatever it is they have to pack up. Or let him go and play golf. Stop annoying him. Stop, stop attracting his attention. Listen, it's the, it's their country and they're the professional politicians. They presumably know what they want. I mean, we don't know what they want, so it's very hard for us to say what they should do. What they want may have consequences that they won't like, I suppose we can say that. Yeah, and if I was the Democratic Party, and I heard that Mitch McConnell wanted me to do this, I would give a very serious thinking as to what Mitch McConnell thinks happens when we do this. Because yeah. Mitch McConnell is not your friend. I mean, we've all seen him when the Senate was cha- when the Democratic uh, Senate was changing the rules around judges, and he just stands up and says, if you do this, you're going to regret it. And you're going to regret it sooner than you think. And now, he's just going, no, no, you should do it. Go on, have fun, do it. It'll feel great. Mm. It'll feel like you're closing the book on it. And don't think about what the actual outcomes are, because I assure you, I have only your best at heart. <laughs> Whatever's best for the Republic. Mm. As measured by Mitch McConnell. As measured by Cocaine Mitch. Thanks for playing. Indeed. Well, we shall, we shall observe with interest. I think we will wrap it up for the, the day, Mike. We'll actually get something done in under an hour. Yeah, why not? Let the people, let the nice people go off. We shall be uh, back on Friday when we shall see... Well, if anything has happened, if we have figures, if we have numbers, if we've all have been vaccinated, if they've decided to fly a plane over I, the country. Uh, the thing I'm really interested to see with the vaccination numbers is Stephen Donnelly comes out and says we're going to vaccinate 35,000 people this week. Then the HSE comes out and says by the end of this week we're going to have vaccinated 35,000 people in total. Those are two different things. So I want to see the numbers when the HSE says we've hit the target. Do they mean the new target? Or do they mean the old target? Because I can absolutely see, I can absolutely see it being the new target. You know, on the, on the, on the, the, I don't know if we mentioned this already, but one of the fun facts, it's now emerged that we know that the French and the Germans have gone off to buy their own vaccines. It's now come out, I don't know if you saw this, that uh, the Danes and the Cypriots have been talking to the Israelis. Yeah, I, I have, uh, now that was actually interesting because that fact got mentioned casually in Israeli media, just got you know, kind of thrown out there. But it got thrown out there in multiple Israeli outlets. Almost yeah. like it was placed there. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, that would be quite interesting, because by that count, then there are four of the EU 27 countries, over 10%, just trying to go outside the EU agreement. And I, I assume you saw the Der Spiegel article, Michael, saying that the Germans are getting a higher percentage of the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines than their population dictates. 60% in one case. 60%? I mean, that's a lot, lot more. No. Uh, we, we, we obviously don't want to talk about the vaccine again, so we're not going to accept to say what we're going to say in the next six number of minutes. A couple of things about that. First of all, we have the good news that the AstraZeneca virus, uh, vaccine, not virus, has, has been submitted. And because there's been rolling, a, rolling uh, data input, they hope to get approval within around a fortnight. Now, that is good. We have ordered a lot of that. AstraZeneca have also said that they are going to. They're hoping to boost their production from one and a half billion to do two billion doses. They already have quite a bit in uh, reserve. CureVac and the, so we we have hope. We have hope that maybe, maybe there may be stuff out there to pull this out of the fire. But I did want to say, Gary, we have been we we first muted at this stage. I suppose around ten days ago, the possibility that we might go to the United Kingdom because they might have some spare vax, vaccines. And with the news uh, now with AstraZeneca, Moderna, Pfizer going and CureVac and Johnson Johnson on the way, it looks very likely they will. I was delighted to see that in the mainstream media and on social media in the last two days, very substantial professorial types of people coming out to say, should we ask the English if they could give us a dig out? It's nice to see that uh, some of our little ideas are getting out into the world. So we will see you uh, Friday. All the best.